This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. On this week's episode, we try to answer one simple-ish question. What would you have done differently to prevent ending up in this Brexit mess. But first, why not join us on Sunday, April the 7th? That's this Sunday. A special recording of the show at Podcast Live in London. Go to podcastlive.com and use the discount code TIMES19 to get 10% off. On the subject of saving money, the Times is currently running a sale on subscriptions. Get a digital account for £1 a month for your first three months. So if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can read much more of it by signing up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And final plug, I promise, and no money off, it's for my stand-up show exclusive to Times subscribers. This is not normal, is it? The Bloomsbury Theatre on May the 29th. Tickets are at mytimesplus.co.uk. Right, down to this week. And as storm Brexit continues to sweep through Westminster, destroying plans, parties and people in its wake, I wanted to turn the clock back to July 2016 when Theresa May first became Prime Minister. Is there anything that she or another leader could have done differently? Or was Brexit always destined to be a complicated mess? Later, I'll speak to Times columnists Ian Martin and Jenny Russell to get their take. But first, joining me in the studio, Chris Wilkins, who is Theresa May's speechwriter and director of strategy in her first year in charge. Jill Rutter from the Institute for Government. And Ollie Wright, Times policy editor, Brexit expert and co-author of the brilliant Times Brexit briefing every week. Uh, let's start with you, Ollie, because you, in the last, it feels like it was about five years ago, but I think it was only last week, you wrote a, a brilliant sort of roundup the road to brexit how we'd ended up here the long and winding road to brexit so you've sort of you've literally cast your eye back and actually remembered properly what happened yeah all the things you've forgotten selective memories what's what's your take on the on the sort of the exam question was it always destined to be like this i think the chances were that it was always destined to be like this i think the odds were very much stacked against the prime minister but i do think there were potentially other avenues that she could have gone down which would have led to a different result. I think one of the critical problems which was really set in stone far too early on was the red lines, that Britain would not be part of the single market, Britain would not be part of the customs union. Now, those red lines were set in stone for very, very good political reasons at that time. But I do think, in hindsight, that they've come back to haunt her. They restricted her options. Then obviously after the election, when she no longer had any kind of majority to push through a deal, um, it became far, far harder politically to 
continue with the strategy that she'd set and stuck with from the outset. Chris, you were in number 10 when those red lines were drawn. That's correct. You wrote the speeches where she <laughs> told us them. Yes. Uh, both her, the party conference speech where the red lines were a little bit faint and we sort of thought we knew what she was getting at. But then it was probably at Lancaster House where she, she set it out properly. So no customs union, no single market, but also no hard border in Northern Ireland. Well, ish. <laughs> I mean, I think the point, I get frustrated about the language of red lines um, because, you know, that's not how you conduct a negotiation. The way you conduct a negotiation is you, you set out your stall and you say, this is what I'm going to try to achieve. But you always know the things that you're prepared to compromise on in order to get the deal over the line. Um, so if you look, for example, at the Lancaster House speech, the Lancaster House speech does not say we will be leaving the customs union. Um, and quite deliberately so, and that's because I always felt that the customs union uh, was the area that the government would be able to compromise on. Because the so, fund- you, so you wrote Lancaster House speech thinking that it had given wriggle room for us to end up in the customs union? That, look, that was my view. I'm not saying that that was the way necessarily the PM saw it or others in Number 10 saw it, and I think part of the issue here is that there was sort of conflicting advice and conflicting views on, on the way forward. But... But certainly, I thought if you looked in the future the way this was going to go, in any negotiation, you have to have the the things that you're prepared to compromise on. And we weren't going to compromise on single market because at the end of the day, the Prime Minister took the view that actually, if the referendum was about anything, it was about ending free movement of people. So single market, there we are, that was a red line. The customs union is not the same thing. And that could have been something where we actually reached out and brought other people into the process. Didn't it become an effective red line because all the rhetoric that was coming for government was the one great advantage of Brexit is we're going to be able to sign our own comprehensive free trade deals. And your first act was to create the Department for International Trade days after Brexit. There's no point to the Department for International Trade with a remit of running an independent trade policy if you're going to stay in the customs union. Certainly Europe, I think, took that as a signal. The UK knows what it's doing. It's a big question mark. Does the UK, did the UK then know what it was doing when it made that big machinery of government and, change? And I think that's, the, for me, the key point, is actually the key uh, missteps uh, and decisions were made actually almost before the Prime Minister got to number 10 and within the first 24 hours of her being there and setting up the Department of International Trade, as you say, does send a very clear signal <laughs> of what, what you're going to do. Um, but nobody had had that discussion uh, at that point. And it's such um, an accident of the fact that everyone thought at the very least there'd be a contest over the summer. This stuff could have been thought, you know, all happened very quickly because Andrew Ledson pulled out. So having thought it would might be a matter of months, it became a matter of days. Liam Fox, I think, had written a blog on Con Home suggesting a Department of International Trade. And lo and behold. Yes, and, and absolutely what would have, in retro, uh, hindsight, worked best was to have taken some time to think these things through. But firstly, you're in a political mm. process, which is a leadership election. Brexit means Brexit. That was something she had to say in order to get people on board. And then you're very quickly sort of signalling your, your direction. And those decisions literally made, I think, in the first 24 hours of her time in Number 10, set the direction for what came next. Now, Jill, you've worked in government. You work now for the Institute for Government, watching what the government's up to and trying to keep track on everything and trying to suggest ways that they might be doing things better. What's been your sort of overriding sense over the last almost three years about the way the sort of the machinery of government has gone about this? Well, I think Chris is right. There's a really interesting sort of set of what you might call path dependencies. You make a decision that it sends you in a direction, even if you didn't really make a conscious decision. So actually, I think the first problem for Theresa May was that she was perceived to have been a Remainer. Um, no 
idea how wedded she was to the Remainer cause. I mean, I think she found it sort of balanced decision was the way it yep. came across. But therefore, I think we got quite a long period of overcompensation uh, right up until the party conference that she didn't feel she had the sort of lever credibility. I always thought that actually that a lever, um, you know, someone who was a declared lever, would find it easier to sell compromises than somebody who was always having to say, actually, Brexit is safe with me. Brexit is really, really, really safe with me. So I think that's the first problem that she had. The second problem, I think, was a real unwillingness to sort of stress test what she wanted. Um, There are a whole bunch of people with EU expertise sitting around, grumpily outside government, tweeting what a disaster the government's Brexit (laughs) strategy is. They were all gagging to be invited in. They could have played the commission. Yeah, you could have had your Simon Frases, your John Kerrs, your Stephen Walls, Andrew, all these guys who are sniping from the sidelines repeatedly could have actually been asked in and said, we need to game out what strategy works. And then you have to make a choice. Do you think you can negotiate something you can sell? Or do you need to say, actually, realistically, we're never going to get something that's politically sellable. And therefore, we're going to not go through this Article 50 process because it's not going to work for us. It's really, really stacked against us. We're going to have to prepare for no deal and then say to Europe, actually, guys, you know what? It's 2019. We're leaving uh, and we'll talk to you about other things. And we're actually ready for that because that's what we've spent the last two years doing. But I don't think there was any sense that. And what we got was the sense that anyone, you know, like Ivan Rogers or whatever, giving inconvenient advice (laughs) was not welcome. And rather than think, well, actually, it's really interesting do we have a strategy for coping with that? Was actually we'd rather not hear about it. You know, put you back in your box, mate. And I think that's not a good way of running around, running these things. Chris might think that's very unfair, but certainly no. From Chris, the other is, side, Chris is nodding and smiling. That's the perception. I, 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 I think Chris recognises exactly what was going on. <laughs> I think that's uh, uh, everything you've just said is fair. Um, but let's uh, look at why that that happened. And and fundamentally, I think the key thing was that even before the prime minister got to number ten, a decision was made. Um, that Brexit was uh, a politically a good thing for the Conservative Party and it was a political opportunity and that the party taking full ownership of this thing was the right thing to do. So the advice the Prime Minister was getting in those early days all came from Brexiteers in the Conservative Party. I used to have uh, uh, an office uh, in number 10 next to uh, one of the meeting rooms, uh, which is next to the cabinet room, which uh, readers of Tim Shipman will know was the B room, uh, it was known at the time. And quite often I would leave my office and see the door to that meeting room ajar and sitting around the table were representatives of the ERG and the right of the Conservative Party. And, and those were the people who were feeding in the thing. And the view was, this is an opportunity. Actually, do you know what? It's sort of not going to be that hard. Because if you remember what they were saying at the time was, you know, we would reach over the heads of the EU and speak to member states. Wrong. They said German car makers would make the German government speak to us and they'd make them cave in. Wrong. They said that Europe feared no deal as much as we did and if we held out that prospect then they would cave. Wrong. That was the problem, was that that's where the advice was coming from and it all turned out and, to be And wrong. that's why the Prime Minister and the you know, Civil Service, Jeremy Hayward, Ollie Robbins, people like that, should have been insisting that the Prime Minister at least heard a counter view on is that negotiable? Because that's clearly been one of the big strategic mistakes. I mean, you know, she was hearing it a bit, but it was quite notable that the qualification working DEXEU was you were the best civil servant. They have really talented civil servants. I mean, these are people I would have killed to work with. Really, really good people who were distinguished by having virtually zero EU experience. That was slightly compensated by, obviously, the presence of UPREP with Ivan. Uh, 
but when he left, you know, Tim Barrow, not a player in that sort of negotiation in the same way. So I think there's a real unwillingness to say, well, OK, that's one possibility. Will it survive contact with reality? Because the real problem with the Prime Minister's strategy is the strategy was fine until it met reality and EU reality <laughs> and that just doesn't work in a negotiation because your strategy has to survive first contact with you know the enemy oh damn that reality <laughs> why was it just an interesting point for Chris why was it that she wasn't getting the contrary advice was I mean were there other people or was it was it who was who was the gatekeeper who was preventing that advice mm. from getting through to the prime minister <laughs> well, as I say, the reason she wasn't getting it is because I think the, the, it was a political decision um, that the Conservative Party should effectively privatise this process. Mm. Um, and uh, the Prime Minister saw that opportunity um, to sort of reshape uh, the future of, of uh, British politics, effectively. Um, and so it was that decision to privatise it as opposed to what I described as socialise it, bringing other people in, bringing expertise in, reaching out cross-party um, and making it more mm. of a sort of engaging mm. consultative process. So it's really interesting so decision to sort of position yourself as the party of the 52% rather than the sort of you know, party trying to say, well, it was very narrowly divided. I mean, lots of people say, you know, you could have said it's a very close-run thing or whatever. And I think that's actually where an issue on which a lever might have actually found it easier to reach across than someone who was saying, you might think I'm one of these 48%, but really, 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 you know, I've changed allegiances, I'm with you, I'm a convert. And we always know it's like sort of people who give up smoking become the most <laughs> hostile to people who go on smoking, isn't it? That vegans, you know, converts, are, converts are really but, dangerous people. But there's something, uh, there's a very interesting point is what she was trying to say and certainly in the early days was she was trying to say, look, I was part of the 48%. We have to recognise that we got this wrong because this thing has come as a surprise to us. So what do we, the 48%, have to change to recognise kind of the grievances that have led to this process. But that was a quite a difficult argument to make and it just came across as her aligning herself with the 52 mm-hmm. rather than the 48. She also, Chris, the thing that's always struck me is that she's not someone who gets up every morning and gives the impression that she thinks this is a good idea. She's often been asked, how would you vote now? Do you think this is all going to be worth it? And won't answer the question. And so you sort of think, well, if you don't think this is a good idea, A, well, should you be doing it? Because maybe it might be a better idea if somebody did think it was a good idea. But also there's this sort of, you're not taking anyone with you. You basically upset everyone. You upset the Remainers who think, well, this really is a terrible idea. But you also upset the Leavers who think, why doesn't she go out and sell it a bit? Yeah, I, I think in her heart of hearts, I suspect she she sort of um, would still, if the uh, decision were tomorrow, think the same way, which was reluctantly remain. Um, but she also takes the view that the uh, if the referendum result was anything, it was a cry from people saying, actually, politics doesn't deliver for us, it doesn't yeah. represent us. And therefore, failing to deliver on the very thing they've talked about really only doubles down on that problem. So that's what absolutely drives her to, to get it's the It's an interesting done. question if she'd, list, if she'd started mm. off on the whole thing from a different place and said, I'm going to deliver Brexit, but what I don't want to do is make people poorer. So mm. what I'm go- the kind of Brexit that I'm going to deliver is a Brexit mm. that ensures that the economic cooperation between Britain and the EU um, remains as constant as it possibly can and sets sail on a softer Brexit while still keeping that narrative mm. of I'm on your side, I understand it was economic mm. pain and the last thing I want to do is make that economic pain worse. Or would that not have worked? So I don't think necessarily that was uh, how so. So the Chancellor always says people didn't vote to make themselves poorer. 
Um, but actually, some people did, and they voted on the issue yeah, of identity likely. and these other issues, and that's the way the Prime Minister interpreted uh, the vote. Um, so it was, as I say, it was things like freedom of movement and things like this that were the main drivers. And the perception in government is that Theresa May, I mean, she's never held one of the big economic briefs. She doesn't, she hasn't come to prime, be Prime Minister from being Chancellor. Uh, she's actually, you know, obviously Jeremy Hayward's a bit different, but basically she surrounds herself with securocrats, mm, yeah. not with economic people. In terms of prime ministers who have some feel for the real economy, she seems to me to be the furthest from that of any prime minister that I can ever remember, and I'm quite old, as you will know. <laughs> so it seems to me that actually, and, you know, and we know for all that period... Her relation with Philip Hammond was not brilliant. No, Treasury had never fair. felt so sidelined. Uh, <laughs> she wanted to dump him at the election or whatever, well, if she could have done, so. and stuff like that. So it was really quite interesting that that sort of argument Ollie's making about should we actually give any primacy to the economy at all just seemed to be completely absent from the thinking. I mean, it was... No, I think that's right. And it, that was the political opportunity was that reshaping British politics around this concept of identity rather than economics was the political opportunity for the party. Uh, and actually, you mentioned Jeremy Hayward, and Jeremy was the main person actually who was contributing the economic arguments to the discussion. Without him, there was very little of that going on. So, to what extent do you think that she had strong views? on any of this stuff. You had a view on the Customs Union, that's why you wrote your speeches carefully. Nick Timothy clearly had a view on the Customs Union, he was pushed for that hard Brexit. Does she have strong views on this stuff? I mean, there's always been this little slight... You know, she goes all the way around the Cabinet table and then still doesn't really come to a position... You know, she was taking a. She relied an awful lot on Nick Timothy to provide direction, rightly or wrongly. There was definitely more direction when he was in number 10 than since. Yeah. Do you think she thinks about any of this stuff so uh, she's so inscrutable that you never really know what she thinks I and mean, the stories about how cabinet works are absolutely true she'll go around the table she'll take contributions but very rarely do you leave the room knowing what she thinks and that's the same in most meetings that you're in with her and you're never quite sure, therefore sure where the final decision comes from and how the final decision is made but the one thing um, that was, I think, insightful right from the sort of start of the process when I got to number 10 in August of 2016 was the Prime Minister saying time and again we are not going to seek a deal that is an off-the-shelf deal. This is going to be a bespoke arrangement, something absolutely unique for the, for the UK uh, and that's what I want to get to. Um, and she felt that could be done in the two-year process. And I've never found out where that view came from but that was the view that shaped so much of what subsequently happened. Okay, this is all really interesting stuff. What I want to do is come back to you uh, later in the episode when I've got some questions from uh, listeners and readers about what they think may or may not have been better done. Uh, But now um, I just want to bring in Ian Martin and Jenny Russell, Times columnists. Ian, uh, in-house Brexiteer. Jenny Russell, less of an enthusiast of Brexit, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Ollie is still in the studio. All going very well. Very good. That's the, that's the uh, that's the game sorted. <laughs> you, you promised all along that it was going to go. Was it well? always going to go this brilliantly well, or could it have been worse? I'm not sure it could be worse now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I'm, I'm trying to unpack that. Did it need to be this way? No. I mean, you have to. If you voted for Brexit, you have to be aware of. Uh, I think of saying, look, if only they'd followed my advice. If only they'd done different things. I was right all along, even though it's turned into a complete shambles and, and a mess. I think people need to acknowledge on the Brexit side the mistakes they personally made. I mean, personally, I thought we'd end up with a compromised Brexit earlier on. Uh, that didn't happen. 
um, for reasons we all understand. Theresa May as a Remainer needed to prove her non-existent Brexiteer credentials in 2016 and set off Herring with the help of uh, Nick Timothy to try and establish that she was a, a, a Brexit purist when she wasn't. So I think that's when a lot of the damage was then done. I think there was another moment where the direction could have been changed and should have been changed. Prime Minister should have been removed the weekend after the election calamity. And if I hear another ERG person... Ever again. Ever again. Try try and defend their role in this. And some some of the people who were in the Cabinet at the time. It was a conscious decision to rescue May. And this is the original sin in that it wasn't done for positive reasons. It was done because they couldn't agree on who it should be or who it shouldn't be. DD wanted to stop Boris. Uh, Boris couldn't attract the support. Um, the result was that Britain went into the next part of the process with someone entirely unsuited to it. That was the moment, with hindsight, and it is all hindsight, when the entire process should have been reset on a compromise basis. A committee should have been formed involving the opposition parties under a different leader. The entire atmosphere could have been different, and there should have been a reckoning at that point about with folk in the ERG and elsewhere to explain that actually the Tories had lost their majority, there wasn't a majority in the country for a hard Brexit and there needed to be some form of softer Brexit uh, work towards it. To what extent do you think as well, it wasn't just that they couldn't settle on a on a Brexiteer alternative leader, that actually across the board from Tory Remainers to Tory hard Brexiteers in the ERG, they all thought, oh she's now so weak, we will be the ones who can buffet her into doing the thing that we wanted actually we've ended up with her being buffeted and doing something that nobody wanted yes that's correct and that is to use that phrase again the original sin if you do these things i think in politics is a messy game but if you do these things for the wrong reasons rather than thinking that the country needs to be properly led through this then you end up with a mess like this jenny you're no fan of brexit do you think if if in 2016 somebody's coming to you and said jenny you be prime minister what what could you have done differently? What could have been done differently instead of how things have panned out? Well, apart from the fact that I'd never been a politician because I couldn't bear all the work involved, I usefully, <laughs> as a columnist, w- was w- was required to offer opinions of the of this kind. And um, unlike Ian, I can sit here and say, I told you so, because they're in print, I jolly well did. <laughs> I mean, when Theresa May came in, I said and wrote and thought that she was in a surprisingly powerful position, precisely because she had been a Remainer. What I assumed she was going to do at the time, because it seemed like the only sensible thing to do, given how narrowly the country had voted for Brexit and how divided the country was, the sensible thing to do would have been to go to the EU for a start and say, I'm a Remainer, this wasn't of my seeking, I didn't call any of you Nazis, I'm sorry for the rudeness of so many idiotic Brexiteers during the campaign, just insulting you gratuitously because they could. And... I'm here to try and make this work for Britain and for Europe. And let, let's sit down and see how we can work out the best possible deal. In exactly the same way, I assumed that she would reach out to other people in Parliament, given that the Tories had this tiny minority, and try and find some cross-party consensus on Brexit. Now, we know that there were cross-party talks were already being prepared, I think, by the Cabinet Office under Cameron in the event of a Brexit. And May and her team just came and put an absolute stop to that. So right from the beginning, she made an extraordinarily foolish decision because when she became Prime Minister, what we tend to forget now is that for the first year, she wasn't weak. 
she was very powerful. She was seen almost to be work, walking on water, and that was because all the Brexiteer opposition to her had collapsed in the light of winning the referendum. Let's not forget that the actual original sin of Brexit wasn't May's response to it. <laughs> it was the fact that the Brexiteers ran a campaign which they neither wanted, intended, or believed they could win. They were running a Brexit campaign. Well, they wanted it. No, they didn't. No, no they Michael. Did. Ma- no, they did, no, no. Honestly. Well, honest, Ma- Boris Johnson didn't want to win, and nor did Michael Gove, and nor did they think they could. No, Michael it was Gove did all- want to win. No, I talked to him. I talked to him throughout it. Well, he and might. I might him he might have talking to a, a Remainer <laughs> had slightly <laughs> no, elided his view, but well, the, the, he is known the, as the, the, the most night, polite the man in Westminster. Before he jumped for He's Brexit, I had a twenty-minute conversation with him about whether or not he should go for it. And he said, "Look, one of the reasons that I'm doing this is that I know perfectly well that we will not win." And the whole idea of the Brexit campaign was just about positioning people like Michael and like Boris within the Tory party. And you could see by their response on the morning of Brexit, they were utterly shocked. They looked like rabbits who'd been shot. They disappeared for five days. Isn't politics a funny old business? I had entirely contradictory conversations (laughs) in the same period. Okay, I can't believe that a politician would... Times Redbox listeners, you can, you, can, you, can, you can discover how duplicitous people may be. And Theresa May had uh, ended up being Prime Minister because everybody else had fallen by the wayside. At that moment, in that first year, she was in um, a position to be able to reach out. And before the Brexiteers had got their, their new eggs in a row or worked out any other strategy, she could have come up with a softer Brexit, which was something which many Brexiteers had advocated during the campaign. Now they act as if no deal Brexit was where but they I were heading. A, a Brex- Hang on a minute. A Brexiteer but, but would never... have been in a stronger position to do that. No, but the point is there were no Brexiteers. She was the only person left who was a, a candidate for being Prime Minister, which is why she became one. But do you one. think that's because everyone agree- thought the same as you did, and I did at the time, that actually Romania would be better because they could reach across. Actually, Ian, do you think, had it been Michael Gove or Boris Johnson, yeah. that they would have... They'd have had... Yeah, wasn't. I mean, I wrote something last week which was a bit of a spoof but about what would have happened if Gove had become Prime Minister. He would have gone on a European tour extravagantly praising European culture. I think he would have been more likely to do what you described, uh, Jenny, in terms of having that conversation with the European Union. And it should have been framed as, look, this was, it was clear the result, but it was close. It was 52-48. It needed to be it needed to be a Brexit, if not for 100% of the country, then for at least but, 75 but or 80%. Ollie, of the you, know, you both say she should have gone and talked to the European Union straight away and been nice to them. I mean, the one thing which was absolutely clear from the time was they were not going to talk to us. Do you remember? You've got to trigger Article 50. No negotiations before you trigger Article 50. I mean, you're right, Ollie. You're right, yeah, you're right, you, Ollie. You've just reminded me as a Brexiteer how ghastly the European Union are. Because <laughs> if this is a failure for British statecrafted it, and it is, and we're going to be talking about it for years, decades oh. to come, this is a catastrophe in the way in which the European Union has has handled this. It is a genius deal uh, done by Barnier only if it passes. If the deal, which is very clever in terms of boxing in the UK, falls apart and we end up possible with no deal, then it has been a negotiating catastrophe from start start to finish for Selmayr and for Barney. So no wonder they look so worried at the moment. Do you think, talk about going around Europe and speaking to European leaders, Theresa May is not a people person. Do you think, because ultimately you you can say this is all about process and what was laid down in Article 50 and all of that, but actually it is... It is people in a room talking. Sure, sure. But but hang on, you're asking what should Theresa May have done? And given the the constraints of her personality, about which we can do absolutely nothing, she's got an unrivaled capacity to make everybody uncomfortable at every level. 
But it's quite nevertheless, a skill. it is quite a skill. And it's, it's, it's not one that's very employable. Ended up as Prime Minister. <laughs> on, uh, I, I told you so basis. Yes, I, Matt, surely you were ahead of the game on Theresa May, but I was. I've been writing for eighteen months. She's entirely unsuited. The Tory party has made a catastrophic historical uh, historic error in not uh, removing her, and now even I mean, it's the ERG. Remember, and it was the hardliners who, for their own interests, propped her up to try and manipulate the process, and that has backfired spectacularly. Okay, but well, thank you for that, Jenny and Ian. You still don't quite agree on Brexit, Kelsa Priest. Ollie, stay where you are. After the break, we'll bring back Chris and Jill and try to answer some of your questions. We'll be back after this short break. 
Did someone else want to include the citizens of nowhere? Because it did t- at the time; it stuck out in the speech. Well, it's, it's interesting because it, uh, I, it didn't stick out for me when okay. I was reading through the speech and when I was putting the speech together. And it was not supposed to be a major part of the speech at all. In fact, it was only a few days after the speech somebody said to me, "Oh, some people are really annoyed about the citizens of nowhere line." And I said, "What line? I, I don't know what 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 you mean." But for me, that speech was all supposed to be about coming together. And I think if you read the final third of it in particular, which was the main bit, as far as I'm concerned, that's what it says. But of course, the damage was done by some of the other rhetoric. And it's now seen very differently. And in many ways, that set up uh, the character of the government from then on in. But I think the interesting thing on this cross-party thing is if she didn't want to do it then, and maybe she didn't, because she had a majority, you know, new leader, the time surely for the rethink, I think the Chief Whip was saying that to Laura Kunzberg on TV, wasn't he? Time for a rethink is when you lose your majority, (laughs) because then you have to realise that this strategy of owning Brexit's not really going so well, is it? And you might need to reach out and actually say to the other parties, you know, actually, Jeremy, that Keir Starmer doesn't look bad negotiator, he looks like he understands some of this, would he like to come in or, or whatever, or at least make an offer the moment you make an offer, even if they reject it, you at least have tried. And I thought it was very weird. I mean, maybe she was so disrupted by the uh, loss of the majority, you know, the stunning turnaround in the election, that it didn't occur to her. But it seemed to me that was the moment to go cross-party, if you hadn't decided that that was your tactic straight after the referendum. Well, I agree. Absolutely, it should have been, because the Conservatives made that uh, election wrongly in my view but they made it a referendum on their Brexit policy it was all all we talked about uh, and you know a 24% poll lead became a hung parliament so very difficult to conclude that you should carry on with exactly the same Brexit policy but what happened was that on election night itself the sort of Brexiteers recognised that actually this this prize this dream might be suddenly about to go down the pan and they got round the Prime Minister very quickly and said you can stay in your role but if you do nothing else but deliver Brexit and get everything else off the table, and that's all you need to do. And crucially, at that point, she was in number 10 with almost no one else. Nick, uh, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill had gone in the wake yep. of the election mess. Yep. Uh, you'd already... I was on my way You out. were already on your way. Katie Perry is on the podcast a lot. She'd already decided to not go back after the uh, general election. Yep. The whole team, the infrastructure, yep. the normal people around you would have sit around the table with a cup of coffee and try to work out what the hell we do, wasn't there. I remember speaking to... One special advisor was who was in number ten. Literally, said he was the only person in number ten. He couldn't find anyone else to even try and sort of work out what was going on. Absolutely, I mean the political operation fell apart. Uh, civil service sort of took immediate control. And you remember the prime minister made a sort of famously tinnier speech the, the, on the Friday. <laughs> another election. one for the long list. Um, <laughs> another long list, um, which stemmed from the civil service saying, frankly, all that matters today is that Europe have to know there is somebody in post to negotiate yeah. with. And so the speech was a speech for Europe, not for the country. Um, but the political operation wasn't there to intervene in processes like that. Ollie, Will Bathurst messaged and said uh, she should have run a proper election campaign in order to secure a majority to make the ERG irrelevant. Do you think... Was it a mistake to have an election at all? I mean, it, was, it didn't seem like high I, risk because you were so far ahead. But I don't think any of us can sit here in hindsight and say it was a mistake for her to hold an election. I think if we, you know, you, you, that's pushing high, even hindsight too far. <laughs> I mean, it looked like, you know, and slam we dunk. all thought that, yeah, as Jill says, slam, slam dunk. And it wasn't a mistake to, to, to call that election. As Chris rightly points out, the way in which the election campaign was run, there were mistakes within that although to be fair we didn't really pick them up at the time other than the sort of you know the famous case of the dementia tax which sort of 
unraveled very quickly. But I don't think that that was a seminal cause of everything. I think it was it was much much broader and deeper than than the, that. The reasons for the loss. I always thought the interesting question was if Theresa May had had to run the election campaign for leader, would you have known that she's actually a terrible campaigner? at the end of that. I mean, she might have squeaked through against Andrea Leadsom with the party, but she'd actually had to go out, answer questions, done those sorts of things. Actually, would people then have said, you know, actually, she's not a great campaigner? Because I think that was the sort of big shock, if you like, of the election. I mean, there was one, you know, trying to get sort of cover for some quite brave and actually not necessarily unsensible proposals on social care and things like that. I mean, that was quite a brave way of trying to use the manifesto, if even if it blew up uh, in their faces. But the real revelation of that was that actually we had a prime minister who was a terrible political campaigner. But you have to shape a campaign around the individual who's there. And, uh, and the point is that was the, it team, the, 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 the team who knew her knew that you would never shape an election campaign around the person of the prime minister. You know, this, this prime minister who'd got to office for sort of quietly doing a good job, working her way up slowly, etc., etc., then touring the country in a bus with her name on it is just sort of nonsensical. Um, but the problem with the election was that the team that knew her weren't really involved in the election, and other people came in and took over instead. And, it, well, I mean, and because her poll ratings were so good, and it became Theresa May's Conservatives and Team I'm I know, Team Theresa I mean, and, and all that stuff. Just um, embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, I think someone much more unkind than me said you can't run a personality-based campaign if you... Don't have a personality. Anyway, Josh Woolcott emailed in and said that a Prime Minister should have done the indicative votes process early doors. It would have achieved cross-party consent and made it very difficult for MPs to turn around and reject a compromise they'd already agreed. The hush-hush behind closed-door nature of the negotiations made it far too easy for them. It does seem quite extraordinary that we are now past the date that we were supposed to have left and we are only now still having the sort of flip-chart brainstorm with MPs about the sorts of things they might being faithful. I think we shouldn't let Parliament off the hook here, actually, because because uh, the Prime Minister's done lots of things wrong, and we've been talking about that. But Parliament basically had the fairly skinny prospectus of Lancaster House and an accompanying white paper, but it hadn't had a proper assessment of the options when it gaily all trooped into the lobby to give the Prime Minister the authority to trigger Article 50. I actually think that one of the really interesting things about Brexit is the Prime Minister's been enormously helped by the fact that Gina Miller insisted and took that to the Supreme Court, so she's actually got that cover. Strong case for saying MPs should have done a bit more due diligence. We were writing stuff at the time saying, you can rule out the single market because you don't want freedom of movement and you accept the EU's line on that. But actually, the case against a customs union is a pragmatic one. It's that you think you will do better in your independent trade policy and that will compensate for the frictions you inevitably introduce before we realise the Irish border was going to go so ballistic. But I think, you know, MPs just didn't bother to ask. They were all they were all sort of caught up with this thing. We have to get on board with the 52%. We have to honour the result of the referendum. You know, holdouts like Ken Clark, who never wanted the referendum anyway, but most felt obliged to go with that. The question wasn't whether you should trigger Article 50. It was whether you were ready to trigger Article 50. And I think, in retrospect, it showed we weren't ready. The only flaw with that, of course, Ollie, is that the, the EU wouldn't speak to us until... Uh, we'd triggered Article 50. Matthew Pinson, no less, the Olympic oh. rower, was among those who got in touch. He said, again, the Prime Minister should have established in short order what Parliament would accept as a definition of Brexit. Do not write Brexit means Brexit here. Set out an achievable roadmap for the negotiation with cross-party support and advice. If achieved, then trigger Article 50. But that that's slightly hindsight 
with the benefit of hindsight, pretending something that wasn't the case. It is, and it goes back to a fantastic column that you wrote on Saturday. If anyone hasn't read it, should go back and look at it. There are still MPs who do not understand the difference between the customs union and the single market. This Absolutely. is after two and a half Indeed. years. They might know. They had a briefing uh, <laughs> briefing just before the debate. I wouldn't hold out too much hope. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but the common I, column I wrote was basically there were some MPs who were too stupid to do Brexit. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, the idea that they would have been more clued up um, back at the beginning of the process is really, really for the birds. Um, they weren't, and some of them still aren't. Again, you know, with hindsight, it is difficult to see how she could have plotted a course that brought them all on board and long seminars on the, you know, the intricate distinctions between exactly the four indivisible freedoms of the single market and the customs union and service <laughs> agreements and goods agreements and the Irish border, you know. It was back in the day when people like Boris Johnson would say, we've got to leave, we've got to be in the single market. I mean, you know, politicians in this country are all over the place on this. And also, they don't want to hear, do they, um, Chris? Those, those groups of ERG MPs were going into number 10 in the early days. Mm. They didn't want to hear that it was complicated. They didn't want no. to read up on the thing that was going to prove that, that what they believed for 40 years was a nonsense. And I think that's absolutely sort of central to this, is that um, people on that side of the argument really thought this was not going to be that complicated, that they'd sort of drunk the sort of Kool-Aid on it and they thought they knew how it was going to go. Um, and I think the other thing uh, that's worth reflecting on is that people on that side of the argument have also been more effective campaigners. Mm. They've framed mm. the debate at every point along the way. People on the other side of the argument have been completely split about, well, are we going to get on board with this? Are we going to oppose it? Are we going to campaign for a re second referendum? What's it going to be? So the story, in many ways, is the failure of the sort of Remainers to coalesce around an alternative view, which has allowed people who thought this was all going to be easy to sort of make the running. And I think that's the sort of line on the indicative votes. I mean, it's, we saw it even last night, didn't we? The sort of arguments. If you really, really, really want Remain and think the route to that is a second referendum... Are you prepared to listen to Ken Clark? He said, look, I'd really like to remain, but I'm prepared to look at second best, less damaging options. And that's why I'm prepared to promote Customs Union, Common Market 2.0, even though I don't think those are nearly as good options as being an EU member. And so I think it's really, really difficult. Until people know definitively their first choice is off the table, they will not move. Mm. And it's not clear that early on in the process, people would have committed to say, actually, my first first preference is off the table. I think one of the extraordinary things about this process, I looked at some polling the other day, who do you blame for the crisis? How few people blame the European Union, which is utterly yeah. extraordinary because you would have <laughs> thought, thought that more people would. you would think yeah. that more people would and you would have thought that, that was actually the easiest argument for everyone to make. It's not yeah. our fault, it's theirs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> our politicians have even been incapable of blaming <laughs> <the old> <laughs> It's proof of how complicated this is. Not just Theresa May's got problems on her side. Jeremy Corbyn hasn't exactly showed himself in glory during this entire process either. And then, as we discovered in the votes on Monday night, even the Lib Dems are split. Um, and there's only 11 of them. So maybe, maybe it just turns out this whole business is, is uh, really complicated. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, get tickets, come and see us on Sunday. Come and see me on May the 29th. And if you want to subscribe to The Times, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. But for now, my huge thanks to Chris, Ollie, Jill, Ian and Jenny for me, Matt Jolly. It's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.